Hi, this is John Penn. Welcome to How Did They Get There? Uh, so today, excited to talk to my guest, Helen Shulman. And as an author of you know several novels and short stories, as well as uh, as a screenwriter, I mean, her work really pushes the boundaries of the exploration of really difficult topics like trauma and tragedy and the loss of love. But I don't mean to say that it's bleak, because it's not. I think that there is a lot of, I wouldn't say optimism, but I think that there's a lot of self-awareness that our characters tend to exude after you know a journey uh, that they've taken with each other. And that's really interesting to watch or read. I mean, I, I really like getting exposed to work like that because it's important and it's relevant. It's hard to separate uh, light and dark sometimes. I think she does a really good job of interweaving those topics together. And so the reader is going on a journey with those characters. And as the characters are evolving, the reader is learning things about themselves that maybe they didn't know before or maybe they didn't acknowledge. And I think that's what a, a really good book can do. And I think that's really evident in her latest book, uh, which is Lucky Dogs. And that's coming out on June 6th of 2023 this year. And I really got to read that. Uh, I mean, it's incredible. I read it. They sent it to me and I loved it because partly of that darkness. But then the other part of it is the journey and the journey that the character takes and also the characters around her take to unravel the world around her is is really remarkable and really wild and really relevant especially in the you know that that era of me too and you see through the character's direct experience the toll of trauma and abuse whether it occurs in the past or the present uh but that toll that that impact that it can have and it's really serious and really affects the way that character sees things i mean that whole lens is affected but then it's like humor, man. It's also like really funny. It's not, again, it's not bleak. It's like very introspective and really art, artfully done. And I think it's a really important read. And I think that makes, you know, that makes the experience really effective. And it's interesting to read this book now because it kind of marks her evolution and writing about these themes. Yeah, I mean, Day at the Beach, for instance, is a book that I love that really resonated with me. I mean, that takes place during the time uh, the setting of 9-11 and how that affects, that tragedy affects a family, um, you know, that's struggling to kind of keep keep it together. She's written several novels, Come With Me, uh, you know, This Beautiful Life, uh, P.S., which was, which she wrote the screenplay of as well, the adaptation, uh, and was made into a, a feature film that starred, uh, you know, Lauren Linney and Topher Grace, Marsha Gay Harden, Paul Rudd. We talked about that that experience, but uh, one tenet of it is that it was set at Columbia, you know, at the School of the Arts, and that's where we we walked from there to the Philosophy Hall, you know, where we talked, and um, it was kind of interesting taking those steps together because I know that she's had so many experiences at Columbia, and um, and that really prompted a lot of uh, discussion. And speaking of teaching, I mean, this is something that she's done a lot. She's right now the fiction chair of the creative writing program at the new school um, where she's tenured. And uh, she's also executive director of Write On NYC, which is a fellowship uh, program. And that gives, you know, writing instruction um, to basically New York City, you know, school age children that um, live in underserved areas. And that's a really important uh, initiative. 
Speaking of children, Wanting a Child uh, is a short story anthology that she co-edited with Jill Bialowski, and it's, it's really incredible because you hear, you see firsthand experiences of difficulties, challenges that, you know, that people have had in terms of starting families, and that's a really important topic. You see good things, you see things that are tough, that are really, um, you know, trauma-inducing, but it's, it's incredible. I love it. I mean, it's a really powerful read. And we talked about New York City. She's a native New Yorker and the city has changed a lot, you know, over the years. And we talked about what, how she feels about it now. So I hope you enjoy the interview, the conversation. And um, this show is about blending psychiatry and film. And I think this conversation is total, totally evident of what I'm going for. So I hope you enjoy. Also take into account that Lucky Dogs is available for pre-order uh, on Amazon or anywhere that you buy your books and will be released June 6th of this year. So enjoy. Yeah, I've walked through it. I mean, I have friends in the area and I have students who have gone to graduate school here, but no, I haven't really hung out here since PS was shot. Yeah. Um, but I taught for 10 years in the MFA program yeah. here when after you, I graduated. So when you come to this campus, do you kind of reflect back on that time when you were a student and a teacher? You know what I was really thinking about? When yeah. I, I walked up Amsterdam and Peter Farrelly, you know, Peter yeah. Farrelly. So Peter and I were at school together and we oh, lived wow. in the same building. Wow. And he lived on the sixth floor and I lived on the fourth and we had these little studio apartments. Yeah. And I was just remembering him and how much fun it was. And yeah. Yeah, he'd make me dinner of butter noodles. Oh, wow. Was he funny? Peter? Yeah. Peter is really funny. Yeah. But he's also the sweetest guy in the entire earth. Yeah. And I remember when he he had a writing partner back then, mm-hmm. um, Bennett Yellen. Yeah. And they wrote this script called Dust to Dust. And yeah. they wanted to give it to um, Eddie... Um, Help me. Uh, Redmayne? No. No, we're going back further. Um, he's an African-American comic. Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy. Yeah. And Eddie Murphy lived in fancy neighborhood in mm-hmm. New Jersey. So yeah. Peter and Bennett hid in his bushes. <laughs> and when he came out of his front door, yeah. they threw the script at him. Wow. And then he came back to my apartment. And he said, we have to think of all the bad things that could happen because anything you think of doesn't happen. <sighs> So then we went through all, he was very superstitious. Oh, wow. So we had to think of all the bad things that could happen. And then he went to every house of worship he could find. Wow. Synagogues, mosques, yeah. churches to pray. Yeah. And then like three days later, in the New York Post, it said, who are the mysterious missives who yeah. wrote Dust to Dust? Wow. And that's how their career started. Wow. So that was Peter. But I was, so I was thinking about him. I haven't seen him in years and years, but I passed the building where we lived, and um, that's what I was thinking about. Wow. Um, so you haven't, but you haven't stayed in touch? No, we did for a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And I thought about that, too, because I was writing screenplays with another friend yeah. from um, the MFA program, yeah. and I remember we went out and stayed with Peter, and he had this bulldog that <laughs> couldn't breathe. It was so inbred. Yeah. And it was just fun. Yeah. He was, he was so nice. Yeah. The nicest. Yeah. Well, that um, that's interesting. Like when you were, because uh, we were also talking about how you just said that in the 70s, New York was different, maybe better. You know, my husband and I fight about this all the time, okay. but he's from California mm-hmm. and I've lived here my whole life. Yeah. 
the 70s were tough. Yeah. My mother would give me a dollar for my front pocket and a dollar for my back pocket. So when mm. I got mugged, I still had a dollar. When? Wow. Um, but I hate now. Yeah. Why? Um, I think the city is too, too, too expensive. Mm -hmm. True. Um, it's filled with massively overly rich people. Yeah. And the subways are a mental hospital. Mm -hmm. And um, it's there are so many homeless people. Yeah. And the feeling is different. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, for a while, we were nicely sanitized by Michael Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. And so even though he wasn't paying attention to the schools and the homeless and the yeah. hospitals, it was really pretty here and mm -hmm. it was felt safe. Right. Now that's gone, too. That's gone. And so when I was growing up, it was really funky. Like there was a lot. There were a lot of artists in mm -hmm. the city. There were a lot of like dance clubs and music clubs. Yeah. There was a lot of performance art and. Um, I was a dancer and I loved to dance and so my girlfriends and I would sneak into um, city center during intermission mm. to see dance wow. for free you know was ballet was am amazingly huge and um, Balanchine was alive and yeah Baryshnikov came yeah. to New York and but we also went to CBGB's and oh yeah the mug club and so there was the a punk, was, punk, happening. punk yeah. was happening yeah. and um, the Palladium was this great yeah. place. So it was a really fun place to be a teenager. And um, the parents in the 70s were probably the most lackadaisical parents <laughs> in the history of America. Yeah. They never knew where we were. Mm -hmm. They never asked. No phones, obviously. Yeah. No phones. Yeah. We just ran wild in the streets, and it was fun. I mean, I just think about, like, uh, uh, John Schlesinger and, like, all those movies, like Midnight, Cowboy and then uh, the Dustin Hoffman Marathon Man that was shot a lot of it was shot here on this campus But that's interesting, but so that's so you were a dancer Well, I mean I was a professional dancer, but, but that, as a kid I studied dance so day at the beach wasn't a stretch that was no you. that was um, Yeah, that yeah. was and it was funny about writing a day at the beach Was just at that time. I ran into a friend of mine as a child mm -hmm. who I danced with her son went to the same school as my children, wow. and she grew up to be a choreographer. Her name mm -hmm. is Hillary Easton. Mm -hmm. And Hillary wanted me to write texts for her modern dance. So I did, just as I was writing a day at the beach. And it was so great because it got me back into the studio yeah. and back into that whole headset. Do you, uh, do you miss that dancing I period do. of your life? I yeah. mean, I do yoga, uh -huh. you know. I, I mean, I work out yeah. a lot, but you know, I'm 62. There's just so many things I can do, but I really love to dance. What are you uh, drinking here? It's this a matcha latte. Oh, nice. Does it look good okay. to you? It looks really healthy. I don't know if it's healthy, but mm -hmm. it's good. Yeah. So you're, you're dancing. Was that something that you that started pretty early on? Um, I danced. Well, my mother put me in a, a, a little movement class at two, mm -hmm. and wow. then I took modern dance, and then I spent a year at... Um, this New York's other city ballet school mm -hmm. um, at SAB, yeah. School of American Ballet. Yeah. Um, and that was like a little too rigid for me. And then I actually where I met Hillary was at this class at the 92nd Street Y. We had this amazing modern dance teacher who allowed us to choreograph. Wow. And I loved it. Yeah. But I developed this strange, this weird, when I was 12, Part of the bone in my leg got infected. Oh wow! And I had to have surgery, and I was on crutches for six to eight months. Wow! And that really derailed 
dance. Uh, so after that, I really tried. I mean, I went to class five days a week. Yeah. And, but the this, this ship had kind of sailed. My body changed. It mm -hmm. wasn't really a dancer's body. And I was interested in other things. So I danced through high school. Um, and I took some classes in college. And then when I came back to New York, I took adult classes yeah. for a long time. When did, the, um, when did the writing, the interest in writing start? Um, I don't really know. Mm -hmm. I wrote in secret most of my life. Did you, were you a big reader? Yes. Yeah. I read all the time. Yeah. It was saved my life. What did you, uh, what did you read? Where did I read? What did you read? I read everything. Yeah. I mean, I remember actually that I read Jane Eyre was my favorite mm -hmm. book when I was in fourth grade. Yeah. And the teach, I wanted to take it out of the school library, and the librarian wouldn't let me take it out because she said oh. it was too old for me. Oh, come on. And my mother had to go into the school and say she's read it already. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. So, so resistance right off the bat, I guess. Yeah. I just loved it. Um, I needed an escape, and that was it. I always wanted to be around books. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as I was describing my teenage years, they weren't very intellectual, that's for sure. Meaning, like, you were into... Things well, outside of that? I was. I went to Bronx Science, which is mm -hmm. supposed to be intellectual school, but yeah. we just got stoned all day. <laughs> yeah. I had a boyfriend. I fooled around okay. with him all day. I didn't. That's all right. I didn't, um, you know. Apply yourself intellectually? No. Yeah. But when I got to college, all these people loved literature, and suddenly I thought, wow, you actually could do this for your life. Yeah. And that was really exciting. You know who else went there to that school is uh, John Favreau, I think. He went there. The director, writer, uh, actor. Went to Bronx Science? Mm -hmm. A yeah. lot of people went to Bronx Science. Yeah. It's really not known for its arts. It's mm -hmm. like... It, Science. Yeah. yeah. All these Nobel Prize winners yeah. and mathematicians and, you know, the genius behind the planetarium mm -hmm. right now was a year ahead of me. Yeah. But I majored in the empty lot across the street. It was called Harris Field. Yeah. Okay. That's where I spent my time. But then you've, I mean, you must have pulled it together somehow because you went to, you went to Cornell, right? Right. So then what, how, what changed? You know, my friend Steve says I could just do it all. I could do yeah. both. Okay. But I, I had a wonderful teacher at science, Arthur Feinberg. Mm -hmm. And I loved him. He was an English teacher. And actually how I got to be friends with him was my friend Steve I think is dyslexic, but anyway, mm -hmm. in high school, he couldn't write his papers, so I would help him. Yeah. And so Mr. Feinberg called up his mom and said that we cheated. Oh. And I went into him and I said, I did not cheat. Yeah. And I just helped him, and then Steve's papers got better. And at the end of the year, Mr. Feinberg said, you're a better teacher than I am. Okay. But anyway, we, I wrote to him when I published my first book. Mm -hmm and thanked him, and over the years, a couple of exchanges of letters, but then I guess, oh, now it's probably about eight years ago, just before he died, he wrote to me, and he was going through his papers, and he found his recommendation letter for me. Wow. And he sent a copy, and I read it, and I cried because yeah. he saw me when nobody else saw me, not my parents, not my friends, nobody knew who I was, but he did. And I think it's that letter that got me into Cornell. No one saw you, who you were because you were hiding, you think? Or they just didn't get you? Maybe both. Both? Yeah. 
Did you find that when you were writing and you're able to, you know, you noticed that you had this ability and that you're able to get seen, was it kind of addictive right away? Did you keep doing it or was there like a, a pause when you went to college where you weren't writing as much? No, I, I didn't get me seen at all. Right. I don't write to be seen. I don't write for anybody but myself. Yeah. And that's still true. I mean, it's probably a, a problem career-wise, but I write because I have to. Yeah. Um, in college, I wrote bad poetry, and then I started to write stories. Yeah. And I had to leave college a little early because my father got sick. Mm. And um, I came home to help and to not also have tuition. Yeah. But I needed some credits to graduate, so actually I came to Columbia. Wow. And I thought, you know what? I wrote a story or two. I'm going to take a fiction writing class. Mm. So I applied to be in this class with this guy named Austin something, mm -hmm. and there wasn't enough room. And guess whose class I ended up in? Mm. Gordon Lish. Okay. And that changed my life. In what way? Completely. Um, Gordon taught me how to read, and mm. that taught me how to write, and I didn't know how to read until I took his class. And he read word for word and sentence by sentence, mm -hmm. and he was so, I don't know if cruel is the right word. The critical? More than that, yeah. he was so manipulative, mm. maybe in a good way, Okay. And so you were, uh -huh. but you read out loud, and as soon as you read something he thought was a false note, he'd say, Shulman, Shulman, shut up, Shulman. Um, you're hurting our ears. You're hurting us. Please wow. stop. Yeah. And that's how he proceeded. And he seemed to know what everybody's instantly know, how to get to everybody's gut. Mm -hmm. The classes were six hours long. Wow. Everybody smoked. Mm -hmm. Nobody ate. Yeah. You were afraid to go to the bathroom because he would talk about you behind your back. Yeah. But he was so passionate about literature. He was editing some of the greatest writers of our time. I mean, we didn't even understand at that point how much he was editing them. I don't yeah. know if you know about the whole Carver thing and Gordon uh, Lish. No. Oh, Raymond Carver yeah. was, Gordon was his editor. And um, then after he died, his wife, Carver's wife, Tess Gallagher, published his stories without Gordon's edits. Oh, wow. And Lish um, completely rewrote the stories. And Carver had felt terrible about it. In fact, at a certain point, he broke away from Lish and brought out his original or rewritten stories, like what we talk about, uh, not what we talk about, what we talk about love, but um, what was it? Oh, yeah, it was. What we talk about when we talk about love, mm -hmm. he wanted, wow. had a, was written it as a story called Beginners. And you can read them both in The New Yorker, and you can read all the commentary out about it. Dan Max, DT Max, wrote a book about it. But it was as if the two of them were collaborators, except Carver wasn't collaborating. Yeah. Wow. And Lish made those stories, but I don't, Lish couldn't write them himself. Mm -hmm. So it was a fascinating thing. Yeah, no, definitely. So in that class that I took, Amy Hempel was in that class, mm -hmm. Anderson Farrell was in that class. Mm -hmm. Um, wow. um, Dana Cowan, who ended up being the editor of Food and Wine for Forever, mm -hmm. is a fr good friend of my husband and mine. She was in that class. I think Mona Simpson took that class. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it was a crazy place, and um, I got out because I got what I needed, and then I thought it all got really crazy. A lot of writers started to all write the same. Mm -hmm. 
he, he got personally involved with a lot of them. Yeah. And that's when I decided I was going to go to grad school. Yeah. But he was definitely the best teacher I ever had. Yeah. Wow. It sounds like, yeah, a really interesting experience. Probably uh, changed the way that you perceived writing and what it means to be a mentor and all of that, right? It changed everything. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I realized that nobody had ever taught me how to read or write. And I still read the way he taught me, which is word for word. Why is this word here? What would happen if you put it there? What if you change that? Why is that sentence there? I mean, it was just so slow. Yeah. Um, but it was so complex. And also, he loved it so much. He loved language. And he would read out loud some stories, and he would weep. Wow. And he made it feel like this was a noble way to spend your life, and that it was a serious endeavor and that you had to treat it as such if that's what you were going to do. And I had no confidence in anything that I did hmm. and didn't, couldn't even imagine myself really as a full person. And that made me think, that's what I want to do. I want to write beautiful sentences. Um, so it was really a mind-blowing experience, but it was also um, really emotionally hard, and I was young. and. He, you know, he had a lot of strange ways of dealing with people. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I've been teaching now forever. Um, I don't do what he did, though mm -hmm. I do line at it like he did. But I, my whole thing is if you support, support somebody, they can grow. Lish's was to really beat you down to your essence so you understood what was wrong with you and then to have you write about it. Mm. So he would say things like, write your worst secret. Wow. And then people would. Wow. So they were all very vulnerable, and he'd get great writing out of them, but that's not always good for you as a person. Yeah, sometimes it takes you to places that uh, are dark that you can't necessarily come out of that easily, right? Uh, I see that so often. All right, so then you're there, and you're soaking up all of him and his passion and then also the other side of him that you're you know, talking about. So then what leads, to, what leads you to go to grad school? I mean, why did you feel like that was the next step? Or, let, let's go back a little bit. All right, so your father was a psychiatrist. Yes. And he was a child and adolescent, right? Yes. Well, so, we did do your homework. Yeah. So then how was, how was that growing up with, with him? I mean, was he, um, you know, attentive? Was he, uh, were you close? I love my father. Yeah. And that was, and this is all in New York, so then you're experiencing the city with him, your parents. Because I, I just noticed that a lot of your books, even uh, in The Lucky Dogs, which I read, they circle a lot about uh, themes in mental health, Right. I mean, if you look at the main um, character, Meredith, I mean, she's definitely going through a lot uh, when she's in Paris, but then also when she comes back to L.A. and has this whole, all these realizations pop out at her, right? So is that something that you're, are you actively thinking about that? Like, this character, um, you know, is defined in some to some degree by her mental health? Like, is that something that you're conscious of, or is that just something that just comes out when you're writing? Well, Meredith was broken before she had a chance to be anything. Mm. I mean, there's a quote in the front of the book from Marguerite Dura, and it's, I, I can't do it perfectly, but I'll ad-lib. It's like saying that at the very beginning of my life, it was already over. Mm. I think that was true for the two main characters of this last book. Um, I think my father taught me to be very psychological, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I was very interested in what he did. And he would talk to me about his patients, not by, by name, yeah. but by, um, 
And he always used to say, you should be a doctor, you'd be a great psychiatrist. But mm -hmm. I just wanted to be near him. Yeah. He worked a lot. He wasn't around a lot. Mm -hmm. And the, so this was a way for me to be with him, I think. But it's definitely affected how I see the world. How? How? Yeah. Um, I think I have a lot of um, native intuition about people, and mm -hmm. I think I have probably almost too much compassion for them. Mm. Too much yeah. compassion, so empathy, right? Yeah, I guess that's, I don't know if I like that word. But, yeah. Um, yeah, he taught me to figure out why. Yeah. So my whole life has been why. Mm. Why, uh, why Lucky Dogs? Because when I read about, I was reading madly and passionately about Me Too. Yeah. And I kind of go on these jags of research hunger, and mm. I research a lot of things that I don't know why. But I got to this point where I read about how Harvey Weinstein threw David Boyce and Ehud Barak, the ex-Prime Minister of Israel, hired a woman and spent a lot of money to destroy the actress Rose McGowan. Mm and to keep her from writing a book. And this woman then pretended to be a woman's advocate. And um, yeah, and she betrayed her. And my first thought was, how could one woman so utterly betray another woman? And then I wrote the book to find out. Yeah. Why, how, why? So that's like the whole W2, uh, that whole thing, right, with Nina. No, I uh, I love the book. Oh, uh, I should you. say, yeah, it's incredible. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing that I that resonated with me. At least I think this was in the first part. Was when um, they're having these drinks, they're having these exchanges, and they're flirting, and everything is like going really well. And then she's in that she's in that um, that car, right? That Uber, and they like have a little thing going on. And you think, wow, like this is really good for this character. Like I really wanted her to be in this triangle, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but in this uh, situation, ba based on her mental health, her desire to be her uh, degree of isolation in Paris. But then it's almost like like the next scene is like, um, it's like your heart is like pulled out when she doesn't get that feeling again, you know? Um, when you were thinking about that, when you were writing that, I mean, is that, how did that come out? Like, it's like the Band-Aid is ripped out of her. Uh, do you think about that? I think she's a very lonely person. I think she had been hypersexualized and abused her whole life. Yeah. Her, her mother was in a mental institution. Her, her father was itinerant. Sometimes they lived in his car. Mm -hmm. She was really pretty. Yeah. Really pretty got her to Hollywood. It also got her raped when she was 16 yeah. in Woody Creek. Really pretty was a curse for her. Um, she's gorgeous Yeah. in a way that everyone in America wants to be, um, which isn't true for Nina. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, um, I'm, I'm going away from the question. No, 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 you're not. Uh, just the, like, it's, it's tied to what you're talking about. Just like this, um, like her beauty has gotten her to this place but then it's also gotten her into situations where she's getting taken advantage of and when she's with 
you know, these new friends, quote unquote, in Paris, she thinks that's different. And she thinks that they actually, to use that word again, they're empathizing or they're compassionate towards her. But when she finds out that's not the case, I mean, it's... Um, she's destroyed. She's destroyed. And then plus she's uh, depressed. She has the substance thing. Yeah, she's got a lot of problems. Yeah. You know, again, she had no parents, really. She was an emancipated minor. She went to L.A. after she's raped and started this career because of her beauty, but she had no education. She yeah. didn't finish high school. Um, she's lived by her wits. And, um, yeah, the only person who really cares for her in the whole world is her manager, Liz. Liz, yeah. Yeah. But I think there are redemptive moments of love for Meredith in the book. Mm -hmm. Redemptive moments of love. What do you uh, elaborate on that? Well, I don't want to give away too yeah, much, yeah, sure, yeah. but she has something with her mother that mm -hmm. right. enlarges her as a person, opens her heart, makes her give. Yeah. She thinks about somebody else first. That's really big for her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why, um, why Paris? Why did you want to open the book with that? I spent so much time in Paris. Really? I spent a lot of time in Paris. I used to teach in a program that sent me to Paris twice a year for about 12 years. Yeah, wow. And um, I love Paris. But for me also, I really love Paris. But Paris, Paris is not the same as Paris. Mm. Okay. And um, there's a seamy side of Paris. There's a dirty side of Paris. Yeah. It's full of rats. I was there during uh, Charlie Hebdo. I was there oh, wow. a few weeks out after oh, the Baclavon. It's terrible. Um, you know, there's often a lot of garbage. There's always these strikes. I've been tear gassed in Paris. Wow. I've run away from anti-gay and um, anti-Jewish um, demonstrations. Wow. So it's not all Croissants and Berets and Emily in Paris. Yeah. And it's where Mary finds herself, is slinking around through the dark of that till she runs into Nina and... Who helps helps her. I guess they help each other in a way, at the help. beginning. In the beginning? Yeah. She's a great spy. Yeah. She's a spy. Yeah. She's phony. Yeah. Um, that element of duplicity, what do you feel like that adds not to the relationship between them, but just to Meredith um, as a whole. Like, how do you, what role do you feel like du duplicity plays in terms of her own recognition of herself? Mary? And, yeah. Well, Mary's an actress. Mm -hmm. So she she knows she what it knows, is. Um, she she's an actress, and she actually is a good one. I think. Yeah. I mean, that's not why she has a career. She has a career because she's gorgeous. Mm -hmm. But. Um, yeah, she's an actress, and she can, she tries to accommodate people. But what happens in the book is that she's overcome by her fury and her anger over her abuse, mm -hmm. and she loses complete control of herself, and she fights back. She's Jake LaMotta. She's Raging Bull. Yeah. You hit her, she's going to hit you back. Yeah. She can't stop herself. And that's what I love about her. I love that even when she makes things worse yeah. and she hurts other people, sure. and she really is a baby and she's very self-centered, mm -hmm. maybe a narcissist mm -hmm. in some ways, and um, 
she's just not gonna let you fuck her yeah. you know, and get away with it without doing something about it and I admire that um, I'm certainly not saying anything about other victims of sexual abuse sure. who did not do that yeah. I mean what, what Mary does is crazy yeah. and really self-destructive but I like that she gets back up you write a lot in terms of like what she how she reacts to her uh, abuse to the rape she uses she vents uh, on social media a lot why did you feel like that was uh, um, have you had you written about social media before was this kind of the main oh see you missed a book mm, which one John you miss coming oh. me oh okay yeah you really have to go home and read that yeah because that's all about the internet okay and it's all about how um, the internet has changed the world yeah um, and then my book um, this beautiful life yeah. was the beginning of all that because that was about a kid who sends another kid a sexual video and it goes viral. Mm -hmm. But um, come with me is all about being able to find to enter your own multiverses through a computer, and it's about Silicon Valley. My yeah. husband grew up, grew up on the Stanford campus, and mm. so I watched. Um, the whole thing happened in Silicon Valley, and I was fascinated with it. And so I said it there. You know, these entrepreneurs at 19. Who, yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm really interested in the internet. Well, uh, the internet is one thing. That's but the uh, Twitter. I mean, that's some, like she does. She uh, vents about you know what happens to her on that. I mean, how do you feel like that impacts her, and why does she do that? Why does she do that? Yeah. Because that's her megaphone. Mm -hmm. That's why, why does anybody use Twitter? I don't, I don't, I'm not into it, so I don't I'm know. not either. Yeah. I'm not on any social yeah, media, yeah. and I'm not on Twitter. Yeah. But that's the way she gets heard, and that's how she gets attention, and that she can do it in the middle of the night when she can't sleep, and she gets a rise out of people. She also hurts people, yeah. some people really badly, um, who maybe don't deserve it. And, um, yeah, that's her weapon. Yeah. She doesn't have much in an arsenal. You know, she just has herself. Mm -hmm. And Liz comes by and makes sure she eats. Yeah, yeah. Um, how was the uh, the MFA experience at Columbia when you came? Well, that's really funny because at the time I thought, honestly, it was a big joke. Right. But in retrospect, it solidified my life as a writer. Yeah. Um, I, I did have some really good teachers. Um, Joyce Johnson was a mentor to me. Mm -hmm. And she really went out of her way to help young women at a time when nobody gave a shit about young women. Yeah. Um, um, I love Robert Towers, who ran the program. I, I thought um, Bill Matthews was a terrific poet. Um, but I made friends for life. Rick Moody's one of my best friends. Mm -hmm. I met him here. Um, the woman who ran the program, Lini Mazumdar, she's still one of my best friends. There's whole bunch of people that I see every once in a while. We used to help, get, help each other get jobs and agents and yeah. all of that. But what happened to me in the program was that I did get an agent and I sold my thesis. Mm -hmm. So I left, came in with nothing and I left with a book yeah. and an agent. And of course that went well and then it didn't. I mean, my, I sold my book to Kanaf um, it came out when I was like 28. Mm -hmm. It was short stories. Maybe nine people read it. Um, I've had a friend here, um, Chris Spain. This was a friend who was also, he, me, and Peter, were, we hung out together, Peter Farrelly. Yeah. 
and we wrote screenplays together and we got a gig and then the writer's strike happened so then I temped I mean I just temped and I tried to get teaching jobs and um, and then I kept going you know but so there was a lot of ups and downs but actually leaving grad school I was in good shape and I had also um, Max Apple had um, blurb that first book, Not a Free Show, and somebody at Emory said, we need a young writer here for a semester, mm. and he recommended me, so I went to Atlanta, and I taught at Emory, and I didn't stay. I didn't want to st- They offered me the job, but it, it gave me a credit. So I came back, and I taught at NYU, and I taught at the 61st Street Y, and I had a student, Zelma Adams, who grew up to not only be a grew up she was grown up then but um, she went on to publish a novel and also become a film critic and Thelma I wrote her a letter of rec for Columbia and she came to Columbia and she wasn't happy with her teachers so she walked in into Stephen Koch's office he was the director then and said you really should hire Helen Shulman and he said I know Helen he picked up the phone and he said do you want to come we need somebody for fall or spring and I said yes. So I was back here, like three years later. So teaching, um, there's a difference between, I guess, the experience that you had um, at Cornell, and then also writing, which I, I assume, I mean, pretty solitary, right? In terms of you're by yourself a lot. But then, when you're with students, how does that change? Did you have a desire to do that always, to be in front of a class, to talk to students one on one? Too shy. Yeah. Really. Yeah really shy and scared to read out loud. I still get scared. Mm. I mean, it didn't help when Gordon would say, Shulman, you're hurting our ears. Yeah, yeah, it took a lot out of me to do that. Also, I was so young when I came back um, here, and I I looked really young. Mm. Um, And so it was to have control over a class that took a lot out of me. I did, but um, Dale Peck was in my first class. Here, Tom Beller. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of. They were tough students. I mean, D- Dale and I are good friends, and we work together at the New School now. But mm-hmm. he was scary as a student. Um, but you know, I was 28. Yeah. So. But I loved school, mm-hmm. and honestly, I don't know what else I would have done. I mean, it, I can't imagine myself working in an office all the time. Yeah. I, I I live in my own head. I'm a weirdo. Um, you know, so I taught. I thought, oh, an academic life would be a good life because I love Cornell so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote screenplays, and I tempt, and I wrote nonfiction, and I wrote books. And that's, I just did that juggle forever. I mean, I worked at, when I was in grad school, I worked at Bellevue as a neurological oh, researcher, wow. mm. assistant. Mm-hmm. So. Um, How was that experience? I got a book out of that one. It was called The Revisionist. Mm. Um, it was fascinating, mm-hmm. but it was also crazy. I was working for a family friend who was really nuts but really smart, and he had been, he was a neurologist, and he yeah. had been, um, oh, did you know about the Karen Ann Quinlan case? You're probably way too young. But because Karen Ann Quinlan was a girl who drank a lot and took a bunch of Valium, mm-hmm. and she ended up, Homotos yeah. and brain dead, but kept alive by machines. And her parents wanted, I think it was her parents, wanted to unhook her to the machines. 
and it was it, the doctor I worked for was named Julius Corrine, and mm -hmm. Julius is what we called him, and he testified that death was a brain death, not cardiac death. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the people, that was a big deal then, because everything was the heart, the heart, the sure. heart. But he argued, no, it's the brain. And so w when I worked for him, it was towards the end of his career, and he wanted to write uh, the counterpoint that when does life begin? It's when the brain begins to fire. It's not the heartbeat. And that's, you know, in yeah. terms of abortion, that's been very, very important is when does the heart start to beat. So, um, yeah, so it was interesting. And so we did that, and we also did this great research where um, he had pregnant mothers read out loud to their to their tummies, wow. and then when the babies were born, they had them read out loud, and they would um, notice that their breathing would slow and their heart rate would come down because they had heard it in utero, and they were comforted by it, mm -hmm. and so that was fun. And I do remember he, he had one of the first brain maps, and he brain wow. mapped me. Hmm. And it came out that it looked like I had a seizure disorder, which I've never, thank God, had a seizure. Wow. But then they couldn't use me anymore as a subject because hmm. I had this really bad EKG. Wow. That's anyway. gnarly. But Bellevue in, in the 80s was insane. I mean, insane. no pun intended. You'd yeah. go in the bathroom, there'd be blood all over. Women would be bathing their children. Wow. You know, people were wandering the hall. I mean, it was insane. Yeah. Right. So I wrote about the, the character and the revisionist, the main character is a neurologist at Bellevue. Mm -hmm. Wow. So you, do you always take personal experience um, and try to, like, put it into your books? Because in terms of the, um, like, the book about, you know, 9-11, which we were talking about, um, I mean, Suz Suzanne, right? That's the... Uh, Suzanne. Would you say that she's, like... Do you employ yourself into Suzanne or no? No. I'm yeah. not an autobiographical writer. Mm -hmm. In fact, nobody is like me. I mean, they have qualities yeah. of me. Sure. And, but it, I make shit up. That's my job. Yeah. I'm a fiction writer. Yeah. My job is to make stuff up. Yeah. But the wanting, the wanting a child, that was personal. That was very personal. Yeah. And that was an anthology, right? Right. How did you um, how did you come to that? I mean, there are other writers involved as well, right? Yeah. So, oh, well, it's my friend Jill Bialowski, yeah. who's one of my best friends. She and I were both having a lot of trouble having families, and we had a very good friend Cheryl Sutcher, still mm -hmm. a very good friend, who I think who put us together because we were going through similar things, and we really helped each other in a really bleak time when everybody was sick of us. You know, it was so painful. And then um, Jill adopt, and her husband adopted Lucas, and I had my daughter Zoe. And we just said, why don't we write something about this? Because there was nowhere to turn. I mean, we were both people who always turned to books for solace and for understanding and comfort and knowledge, and we couldn't find anything. Mm -hmm. So we went around to a lot of people we knew who either had trouble having children or were doing things that were considered avant-garde at the time, like, you know, gay couples adopting or using a sperm donor. In vitro. Um, we, it was at the time. It was 1988, I think, that book came out. Mm -hmm. It was the beginning. Um, you know, single mothers, people adopting cross-race. 
Um, IV, there are IVF triplets on the cover of the book, and they were written by, they were the children of one of our contributors. Oh, wow. Amy Hempel wrote a great essay about not having children. And um, yeah, we had one by a woman who um, aborted uh, several um, mm -hmm. fetuses because of Down syndrome. And then we had one by somebody who had a Down syndrome baby. Yeah. So it was a complex um, group of essays. I think they're beautiful. Yeah, no, it's I really incredible. love them. Yeah. Um, but it was hard. Did you get a lot of... Um response from women, from people, from families that were having trouble, whether it was with conception or just other like birthing issues? Well, it's interesting because I just actually went to visit one of my students who just had a baby yeah. and she told me that she read the book over and over again. And that book is old. Mm. I mean, it's so out of print um, and because she, she had a hard time. So I think a lot of people were helped by it. But this is an ugly story. Mm. Um, Time Magazine bought my essay. It was, I think, the first personal essay they did mm -hmm. um, and published it. And then they got to hate mail on it. My husband was at Time. Wow. It was Jim Kelly, who is a dear friend of mine now. But he bought the essay. He just, I'd sent the book to his wife because they were about to adopt. Mm -hmm. Um, anyway, the, the I thought my husband was going to kill somebody. He's a very mild man, but there were when some of the letters were like, "You, you don't deserve to be a parent. How could you?" I can't remember what made them so mad, mm. but it was so. It was my first experience of hate mail. Yeah, and it made me decide I never want it. I'm never. And then when the whole thing with the internet and all yeah. that, I just avoided it. It was too painful. It is painful. What do you think about, because um, now a lot of people don't think that way. I mean, they're so, they're almost like numb to all the stimulus that they get online. Do you think that's, uh, do you think that's bad? Um, you know, I have a lot of feelings about yeah. all of this. Yeah. You mean, do I think people get a nerd? Uh, I mean, like there's a, just the constant, um, like this, TikTok thing, whatever, like all the stuff that happened, I guess during the pandemic, but even before, like, like have, people have lives online that are not who they really are. Do you, I mean, and a lot of kids now are really getting into that too. Oh, I think it's really hard. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really hard on children, you know, the way they're supposed to look, especially for girls, all those pictures of them with their boobs out and their butt out and yeah. all that makeup on and the filters and I think it's that's unhealthy. I think it, I remember my daughter was on um, Facebook in middle school and like you'd see the boy you like kissing somebody else or mm. people would be at a party you didn't know about. I mean, we always had that, but you didn't have to see it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's pr probably pretty painful. I mean, I know it's helped people who, mm -hmm. you know, are isolated or and need grief to find support groups and like, stuff. Yeah. yeah, or, you know, or even people with, um, Fetishes that don't hurt anybody. Yeah. You know, you find other people like you or, or people with esoteric interests mm -hmm. or, you know, you can find your people. But, I mean, I don't know how anybody after the last election and the last yeah, still uses few that years can think that this is good, all yeah. this misinformation, all the hate. Yeah. It's horrible. Uh, were you here? So you were here uh, during, like, 9-11 and that whole... Yeah. Um, did you, like... 
did you kind of did, I don't I mean you didn't go to East Hampton like that that couple right so you were you here or oh yeah we were here you, yeah. um actually my parents had a little house in Amagansett but okay. we didn't go no yeah. it was both my children's first day of school wow it was my son's first day of nursery school and my daughter's first day of kindergarten. Wow. So my husband was home. So we took, as a family, we took Zoe to school on the east side. She's older. And then Bruce, that's my husband, and I took Isaac to the little nursery school. And as we were going up the steps, a man was on a cell phone and he goes, yeah, was, there was a two planes. Mm -hmm. And I said, what's that, Bruce? He goes, oh, there's some plane. I like some passing, you know, a little private yeah. plane hit the tra World Trade Center. Yeah. And then by the time we came out of the meet and greet with all the parents, it was like the whole city had shut down and well, people had t TV sets out on the street and somebody said the world's ending and they said, oh, they p bombed the Pentagon. And I, I am such a naive and I am so blind to things. I turned to my husband and I said, that's how Rumors get started. Yeah. And then we went home so that our babysitter could go home <laughs> to her family. I got her money and we went home and we turned on the TV just as the second tower was coming down. Mm -hmm. And I said, Bruce, why did they detonate it so fast? I mean, it was every piece of denial you yeah. could have I had. And then we went and we got Zoe from school and we went to the playground. It was the most beautiful day I've ever seen, 9-11. Mm -hmm. I don't know where you were, but in New I York? Was in, uh, I was in Abu Dhabi, actually. Is that where you were from? Nope. That's, I was there because my mom was, she's a physician, and she was working. Uh, we stayed there for a year. She was working there. Um, yeah, interesting time. So it was, here was, it was crystal clear, and the playground was so alive, and all the dads were there because mm -hmm. it was the first day of school. Yeah. Like, the, the terrorists didn't think about New York City private schools. Um, so, and actually one friend of ours, he worked in the second tower and everybody wow. he worked with died. Wow. But not him because his kid couldn't separate. So he stayed on at school longer because the kid wouldn't let go of his knee. And so he was pushing her on the swing and he started telling it to me about all his office mates who were wow. now dead. It's like the, um that surfer, I mean, when he, you know, you come, uh, you know, Susanna comes across him on the beach, she's with her son, and uh, because he was surfing, he missed his, his 102, right, uh, in the South Tower, it's wild, um, escaping like that. The character in that book that I just can't shake for some reason is that, um, that Larry character, that he comes back and he tells Susanna that he's been, uh, he basically that he's had this crush on her, but that he's been he's been like watching her and he's had this um, just like this version of her in his mind and it's weird. I don't remember him at all. Tell me. About he comes him. at so the uh, he comes at the end, so it's like him and I guess Leah, like. Um, uh, they're in, you know, they're in East Hampton, and um, he he basically comes into her life when he's when she's with her son, and um, you know, and she's he's kind the of the one who tells her his diagnosis, right? Yeah, yeah, he's the one, and then he also um, like, and then he comes into contact with Gerhardt, and he doesn't like him because, uh, and he's the artist, right? He's about to show, um, I guess, at Pace. This is so crazy that yeah. I don't remember this at all. Yeah, but that character. Um, 
I guess the reason why it just uh, why it got me. I mean, I wonder why, but it just it just feels like um, like the world is you know shutting down. All these things are happening, but he comes into her life at such a weird weird time. Um, when you wrote that book, and that was in two thousand eight, right? So a few years have passed since nine eleven. What led you to kind of write that? Is that true? It was in 2007, yeah. 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in a playground with my children and ran into some friends, and they told me that they had escaped the city for East Hampton. And um, there were all these things that I'd been wanting to write about. I wanted to write about how, like, the go-go 90s and the early aughts and um, uh, the go-go 90s and how everything was about money and um, the world had changed so much. I wanted to write about September 10th Mm. and then September 11th happened and I said to my husband, do you know how much bad art there's going to be made out of this? I mean, we were so traumatized. This came later than when I made that crass comment, but we ran into this couple and they were old friends and they said that they escaped to her parents had this mansion on the beach. And I thought about my family escaping the pogroms and mm. the Nazis and how they didn't go to East Hampton, right? They went to the next shtetl. And I thought it was such a perfect story for where we were as a country. And yeah, I mean, I guess it was in a way social criticism. It mm. was like, Okay, that's what you do. You go to East Hampton and you go to the Barefoot Contessa. And, yeah. Um, but you've escaped horror. And what I felt so acutely on 9-11 and the months after was the incredible family of man mm. in New York City. Everybody was so good to each other. People on the street, strangers would say, are you okay? Can I help you? The first responders, I'm gonna cry now. I mean, they went into those buildings. They risked their lives. So many of them who lived ended up with cancer and lung disease Mm -hmm. because Woody Giuliani is a fucking liar. And Christy Todd Whitman. But the feeling of, it was like, I felt like they had rescued my family because they didn't know who they were rescuing. They yeah. would have rescued anybody. It was such bravery. And and then we were traveling in Europe that summer and people would just hug us in the street. Wow. They they felt for us. And I thought, oh, wow. See, you're, you're seeing the side of me that is so naive and stupid. Uh. This is our time. This is our time to right our wrongs. This is our time to w- reach out to the world. The world is open to us. We're open to each other. And of course, it was George Bush, and he attacks mm-hmm. Iraq for no reason, and he destroys, mm-hmm. he really destroyed calm in the world, and there's yeah. been mass migration and war ever since. And most of the problems we have come from that stupid war. Mm-hmm. And I was crushed by it. Yeah. And so I guess I wanted to write about that opportunity as well. Yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, really incredible, really incredible book. When you, because uh, we were talking about Colombia, where we are, P.S., 
which takes place at Columbia, uh, at, at the School of the Arts specifically. How did you, uh, I mean, did you, because that character, uh, you know, I guess Scott and then F. Scott, Fran, right, comes back. Did you, Were you interested in just the idea of, like, reincarnation, just as something to think about? No, I yeah. was, this is a really boring um, origin story, but yeah. I worked there and I read applications yeah. and you read so many and some are good and some are bad, but yeah. I mean, it was, especially back then, you know, I read them on the subway. Uh -huh. I was teaching at NYU and at Columbia at the same time, yeah. you know, and I one day I thought, what if somebody from another life applied here? Yeah. And then I, the idea stuck. How I came up with this doppelganger, I have no idea. It uh -huh. just popped out of my pen. It was like, what if you had, you know, it's that's not an original idea in that, what if you had a chance to do it over again with what you know now? But she literally has that chance because mm -hmm. she he's still young. I mean, he's not yeah. the exact age as the boy who died in the car accident, but... Um, he's close. He's 24, mm -hmm. and she's like 38 or something. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, and so that was it. And it was a sexual revenge fantasy. I mean, mm -hmm. I thought it was a, a, you know, I saw it as a comedic book, but oh, I wow. think I have a strange sense of humor. No, uh, there's comedy in that. There's comedy in all the books. Um, you know, the present one, I mean, not excluded, Lucky Dogs, there's tons of comedy in that, um, right? Wouldn't you say? I mean, I think it's... Um, I wouldn't call it a comedy necessarily, but there's, it seems like there's funny. So when you employ humor in that, in especially dark situations, you're talking about like rape, abuse, uh, deception, duplicity. Um, is that something that you kind of, you put in there to deflate some of that tension or do you, does it just come out naturally? I think it's a mixture of both. Mm -hmm. I mean, tactically, I think that the best way to get to somebody is like while they're laughing you stick the knife in their gut it's like yeah. a great way to um open up a reader to you and then you you know they're open and then you can really tell them something truthful and hard mm -hmm. but i think it's just how my mind works you know i mean i that's how i think so uh but it was funny i, I love my agent mm -hmm. more than i love him so much sloan harris and my husband's Bruce, and his name is Bruce, and I said, well, Bruce thinks this book is funny. And Sloan said, if he thinks it's funny, he's a really sick man. And he was not joking. Wow. He was like, this book is not funny. This is like the darkest book, and you really? write dark books. But I think it's really yeah. funny. Yeah, it is funny. So um, it's hard to, you know, how do you get that across to people who haven't read it yet? Because it sounds like it's such a dark book, and it is, but... I hope it's not too painful. No, I mean, it's, look, I mean, <laughs> I think anyone that's been around for, I guess, three years now, the past three years, knows about, has some idea of what it means to be isolated trauma, even if they haven't experienced what she does, which is, I mean, that's, you know, really wild. They still, I don't think that that's going to, um, that's something that would deject them from being able to relate to that feeling. I mean, we all, we've all been through high school. We all know what it feels like to be in the corner sometimes, right? All right. Um, so then in terms of PS, because that, did you see that as a film? Uh, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. That's, a, that's a complicated story. So PS started as a short story. Mm -hmm. And um, 
it was in GQ and then it was in anthologized and I was had I had a real hard time selling the revisionist mm. and so somebody suggested why don't you turn PS into a novel I thought, okay and I did and then I was hired to write as a screenplay and I did for this really lovely company Heart Sharp they had did did you can count on me oh, also yeah. with Laura Lenny mm -hmm. And I wrote this script that everybody loved. This is the story of my life. Everybody loved it. Uh -huh. The head of ICM loved it. He wanted Julia Roberts to be in it. Mm -hmm. We went out for a celebratory dinner. And then they wanted, I forget, it was some A-list director. She would only do it if it was him. Yeah. And he would just never read it. And cut to, it ends up with Dylan Kidd, mm -hmm. who had done... Roger Dodger. Roger Dodger. And Dylan and I have completely separate sensibilities. Oh, wow. And he decided he was going to rewrite my whole script. Mm. But he also really wanted my approval. It was a very complicated process, and it was extremely painful to me. Um, though he's a nice man, mm -hmm. and I think a talented man, he really saw it as a serious piece. And it was, I thought, a co darkly comic revenge, sexual revenge yeah. fantasy. So instead of tarting it up, which is what usually happens in Hollywood, it got, all the subtext became text, I thought, mm. in the film. There were great actors in it. Yeah. And it was really fun for me when they shot here. I remember I came to see them shoot, and Laura, there was a scene where she was looking at slides. Yeah. And it was a room like this, except there were windows all around the room. Right. And she just went around the room, yep. turning, closing mm -hmm. the shades. Yeah. She did it eight times, eight different ways. Wow. There was no words. And I was like, how the fuck did you... I'm sorry. No, to no of course, yeah. Um, how did you do that? Yeah. And she said, well, I wanted him to have choices. And, wow. you know, I, she has such control as an artist that she, it was eight different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and that was amazing. But, you know, I was not happy with the film. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, it was cool. It was like Paul Rudd was in it, oh, yeah. and Marsha Gay Harden, mm -hmm. and Gabriel Byrne, and um, I'm even in it. You're For in one it? second, I crossed the steps here. Uh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Richie Dillon was nice. Like, he let me do that, and oh. but he just, they also took all the Jew out of it. Mm. You know, I mean, my characters were Jewish. Mm -hmm. F. Scott, Scott was um, the son of a rabbi. You know, it was taking place in Larchmont, yeah. and as much as I love Laura, I think she's the brilliant actress, and I really like Topher. Yeah. They were so daring in Connecticut mm -hmm. that um, I remember they were shooting in the Hungarian pastry shop, and the, Dylan writes these very, very long speeches, yeah. and I was like, what happened? And then I just never came back to set. I mm -hmm. just couldn't stand it. Was that, so, uh, so that was kind of crushing in some ways? But at least, I mean, I guess uh, shooting, having a film shot where you kind of evolved as an artist, as a writer, is definitely something that's interesting, right? I mean, at Columbia? Um, I don't know. It's funny because yeah. I've written a bunch of screenplays for hire, and I've yeah. worked with a lot of really interesting people, like Francis Coppola, and, yeah. and I worked with um, David Leland and mm -hmm. um, uh, Tim Hunter a lot, and... Yeah. Um, I always had hope that I would have a movie made, and I really loved doing it. It was really fun. When this got made, I got depressed mm. because I thought they wrecked it. 
you know. So I stopped writing screenplays for a while, mm. um, and then I did again because it's fun and I like it, and um, it's a chance to make some money. Yeah. Um, but nothing else has been made. Yeah. Uh, my my Coppola script got so close. Yeah. But it didn't happen. Yeah. So. So then, um, the new school where you're currently a professor, you're tenured, um, did, going there and, um, and teaching, and your, I guess your specialty, would you say fiction? Fiction writing is your main? Yeah, that's so, what I teach. So then how did you, um, how does that experience differ from past experiences where you've taught? Because it seems like you've done that quite a bit throughout your career. So many a lot. places. So how is this different? I love it. Well, yeah. I loved the new, I still love the new school. I, I loved it less this year because we had a terrible strike that mm. really broke the back of the university. But in my heart, I love the new school. It's probably the craziest institution mm. in America. And yeah. it was um, one of the most progressive. And um, I love my students. They're so nice. Um, I mean, I taught here and I had plenty of students I loved and a lot of them are still friends and I've hired them and I've, you know, um, blurbed them and mm -hmm. some of them have better careers than I do and they're great. But the esprit de corps at the new school is warm and supportive and loving. It's not cutthroat. I mean, and, um, you know, that can happen easily in a writing program, but the new school and they come from all over the world. They are every gender. Um, we have different ages. Um, we have rich and poor. It's really an eclectic, fascinating community every year, and I love that. Um, and I also, about seven years ago, I started a program with three of my grad students um, called Write On, mm -hmm. where we train and pay MFA students to go teach in local high schools and middle schools, wow. creative writing and literature. And that is like the joy of my life. Wow. I love this program. Our students have been so amazing, even during COVID. I mean, my students were like, they were thrown from to the winds. You know, some of them had, there were deaths in their family. Some of them lost their apartments. They lost wow. their jobs. They taught from bus stations. They taught wow from people's couches, mm -hmm. you know, to kids who were locked into apartments with a lot of family and a lot of death and a lot of yeah. COVID and they produced beautiful work. Mm -hmm. uh, I was so proud of them and it, they gave me hope. They give me courage. The kid, you know, between the Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. and the Asian, you know, anti-Asian yeah. stuff, my students and their students were so traumatized. Um, the Trump years, mm -hmm. I mean, we some of the some of we started in the school George Jackson's Academy, which is all boys, ninety seven percent BIPOC, ninety seven percent below the poverty line, and one boy said wrote something and said, "I love my teachers so much. The only places I feel safe are at school with them and at home." Wow, you know it kills me, and I um, I have my fellows write. Um, reports at the end of every year telling me what they got out of the program and if um, you know also giving feedback on what we can do to make it better we, we have a pedagogy class we send them in in pairs mm -hmm. we 
We try to make them diverse pairs. They do their own curriculum, but we help them to build it. And one of our students, Stone Mims, wrote his essay was about the layout of the George Jackson School, mm. which is in an old um, parochial building. Mm -hmm. You know, the the gym is the lunchroom, is the assembly room, it's, is the basement. I mean, it's not a fancy place, but he just loved it because he said every school I went to looked like a jail, and he's black from the south. Mm. And then he went on for two pages about how, what the differences were in the physical layout of the school. You know, I cried. Wow. So this has been a great boon for me emotionally, is this project. Yeah. But I love my students. They go out and they, they write books and they publish them and they're great and, you know, it's fun. Well, um, you know, your impact as a writer and artist is so unquestionable and um, so important. And the topics that you've touched on, that you've not just touched on, but you've really gone deep into, um, you know, especially the birth uh, elements and then also the trauma, the tragedies. Um, and then the new book, all the themes that we talked about, you know, in Lucky Dogs are so, um, it's important for people to see that stuff. And I think it really is life-changing work. So thanks so much for for all of that and thanks so much for, for coming on my Thank show. Thank you so much. I feel so honored that you've read so much of my book and this was a lovely conversation.